I looked at the open source community as being a uh, a library of sorts, kind of like having the set of the Encyclopedia Britannica on your shelf. It's a sense of power that I can always turn behind me and go to my shelf and have all this wonderful open source resource or reference material that I could call upon. What, what I think you kind of look for with when you're coming into an open source project is somebody who's inviting, who, who hears you out, who, who kind of encourages you and says, yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't make sense. Here's what we've done in the past. Here's why we did it this way. Having somebody who is comfortable making other people feel comfortable is really, really important. That's Scott Hanselman and Mark Downey, maintainers of DOS Blog. And this is the Readme podcast, a GitHub podcast that takes a peek behind the curtain in some of the most impactful open source projects and the developers who make them happen. I am B. Dougie, aka Brian Douglas. And I'm Kathy Korvac. In every episode, Kathy and I invite a maintainer or open source developer into the studio to explore their work, their story, and where the two meet. In this episode, we speak with Scott Hanselman and Mark Downey, maintainers of DOS Blog which is a blogging application that doesn't require a database, supports languages across the globe, and is developed in C-sharp. Theirs was a quintessential GitHub story. Scott was maintaining DOS blog, and Mark discovered ways to improve upon it, so he reached out to Scott. Scott is from Portland, Oregon, and Mark is from the Midlands in England. The open source community gave them the opportunity to connect, and a collaboration was born. Since then, DOS blog has continued to grow and develop. Speaking with Scott and Mark, you can see their camaraderie and their belief in the power of open source. When Scott started maintaining DOS blog, he inherited nearly 20 years of code and Mark brought that code into the future. In this conversation, we learn about how computers and coding came into Scott and Mark's lives, the responsibility one feels when taking over heritage code, and the value of blogging. When I was 12, I... uh got to use an Apple II, and it wasn't the school computer or the classroom computer. It was the only computer. It was the only computer within 50 miles. It was the one Apple II that was assigned to my middle school, and we all had time on it. And I happened to just have a knack for some reason. And I was also causing trouble and maybe getting involved in things I shouldn't be getting involved in. So I was encouraged to spend time on the computer so that I wouldn't be kind of in the streets, you know, beating up small children and knocking down old ladies. Uh, and in the process, my fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Marion Hill, said, why don't we let Scott have more time on the computer? And using that computer was my privilege because she allowed us to steal a $2,000 Apple on Friday nights. My dad would back his pickup truck to the side of the school. We would sneak the computer out of the school. And as long as we had it back by Sunday afternoon, the principal would look the other way. And rather than causing trouble on the weekends, I spent time with that computer in my, in my parents' basement. Then one day I came home and our van was gone, the van that is parked outside of our house. A lot of families in the community that I grew up in would think, think of like vehicles in your neighborhood, vehicles that you own, or as a sign of wealth. So we had this car and the car was gone. And I found out that my dad had sold it for $400 and bought a Commodore 64. And then uh, spent, I got to spend time with that. So we were one of the first families to have a computer inside the house, which was really just extraordinary. The idea that I had access to a machine, but in order to do that, my dad had given up the car, was really, uh, really special. And 35 years later, I can say that if that had not happened, I don't know what I would have done. So it is uh, 
truly extraordinary. And I recognize that privilege every day. Excellent. And could you just uh, set more of the the stage for like, where is that, where's your small town that you're, you're from? And uh, I guess you already gave us a, a number as far as age goes. So we can sort of do some backwards math. <laughs> I grew up in Northeast Portland in a very uh, middle-class, lower middle-class, blue-collar community. My dad, I'm the first one to graduate from college in my family. My dad was a firefighter. Uh, he uh, And my mom was a zookeeper. And um, they didn't know anything about computers at all, other than, you know, you could go to Sears and buy one if you had the money. Uh, so it was, uh, wasn't a small town. It was inner Northeast Portland. Uh, but we've been Portlanders for, for since day one. And, uh, but there just, there wasn't a computer like to, to go and get it. There wasn't a library to go to, to find a computer. Like it was the eighties. Uh, the, when the school got the money to buy the Apple II, that was like an event for us all to be excited. Um, and I've since had my dad on my podcast and I've written blog posts and talked about the, the formalness of giving someone access like that so early is, is very much appreciated. And, uh, I don't know if I've never said this publicly, but I have, when I get a raise at work, I call my dad and I tell him, I just got a raise and I can put it back to that day when you sold the van. Wow, that's <laughs> that's tear jerking. <laughs> well, what's important about yeah. that is that now that I have, you know, I have these conversations with with him and my parents, my mom and my dad regularly. It is beholden to me to send the ladder back down. I have spent my entire career, and I just all day, every day, to tell people, "Let's get you access. Let's figure out how you can do this." Open source is for everyone, so I am going to knock down gates uh, and prevent gatekeeping at all costs. And just because I got a computer at twelve and you got one at twenty-two, doesn't mean that you, whoever you are, can't can't do open source as well. When you call your dad and tell him I got a raise, and I can point point it back to that day you sold the van, what does he say? you'd have to kind of know my dad, but he's like, you know, if you, if you were digging ditches, we just want you to be happy. You know, his whole thing, his, the, the, everything in the eighties was don't do drugs. So what my dad says is like, Hey, you're not doing drugs. So we're just happy that you're happy. You know, I don't have a tweeter, but I'm glad <laughs> that you, uh, that you can tweet. You know, that's kind of my, my dad, you know, he's just, I, you know, I'm glad that you're happy. It was a small thing. You know, of course you do whatever you can for your kids, but this is somebody who was a firefighter who then when he wasn't a firefighter, he was, uh, driving an oil truck. He was doing, you know, construction and carpentry on the side. I mean, it's like just filling his days with things that he could do with his, with his hands. And, uh, my brother turned out to be a firefighter as well. So really I'm the only one that does a thing that no one understands. You know, they just like, they call me when they need to reboot the router, but it is absolutely my privilege every single day to go down there and reboot the router. So every time my parents call me for tech support, rather than being annoyed, I say, this is a gift. And I go down there and I reboot that freaking router and they just go, that's, that's our son. He works for Microsoft. <laughs> that's awesome. So Mark, I'm wondering for you two, what's your first experience with a computer? Mine goes back to when I was about, <laughs> about 12 or 13 years old um, in England, if you were lucky enough, and I wasn't at first, but you could get a ZX Spectrum for really cheap around about when I was 12 or 13 years old. ZX Spectrums were the kind of way everybody got into gaming when I was younger. Um, but by the time I could afford 
Ford one, kind of people had moved on to like Amigas and other other kind of versions of, of PCs that had come about. But when I got mine, um, I had this one management game um, that I realized if you kind of did a particular keystroke, you could get in and edit the basic code that was running the game in the background. So you'd load it via tape, um, you'd hit a particular key sequence, and you'd be dropped into lines of code. And I found out really quickly that, and it was a, a soccer management game, football management game, and I found out really quickly I could adjust my budget for my team um, by by getting in on that basic code. So for me, I was um, realizing that the, the magic behind this was accessible. And that was the kind of like the first, my first realization that, it's magic, but you can you can get to know what the magic is if you've got the if you've got the right tools, and so that ZX Spectrum really became um, my understanding that there's something below the kind of lay, the, the, the kind of veneer of of computing that I should know about. And my brother was kind enough; he was a somewhat older than me. He was like um, ten years older than me. He had been working for a while, and um, personal computers, 386 was the thing at that time. And he purchased a computer for the family, for, for himself and for me. And he, and, he, and he kind of like introduced me. That was my opportunity to kind of get into computers. Um, and so um, that was really where it all started. Uh, Every person seems to have their own story of when computers first came into their lives, especially when computers weren't so ubiquitous. Knowing the roots of something always allows you to appreciate how far it's come. This is not only true with hardware, but with software as well. Well, one of the things that is a privilege of being an older person in software is the historical context of things. And I think that sometimes when old people reminisce, they reminisce about, you know, back when we had AOL and back before AOL and, you know, did you know what we did before the internet type stories? But those are really interesting and really, why was this built this way? And, you know, why was why was Mark's uh, football management game written that way? Because that was the basic of the time. And how did that basic begat the next, we got visual basic. And, you know, what you were saying that your, one of your first entrees was maybe visual basic. I wrote, I wrote some of the early tests to become certified in visual basic. Uh, that was a small thing that I was able to do 30 years ago to like get more people excited about, about programming. I'm trying to remember when I started thinking about coding though, unfortunately it was C. And it was pointers that almost broke me. And I think about that sometimes because when I learned pointers, I was in a class at Portland Community College and the young person next to me understood pointers and I didn't. And it was kind of the calculus of coding and I was about ready to just give up. And they sat with me and they made me understand pointers. And I'm now I'm even just moment as I'm sitting here telling this to you, I'm realizing that that could have been the thing that made me give up and I did not. But at the same time, I don't think I've thought deeply about pointers since then, as I am fortunate to work in a reference in a language like C Sharp or language like JavaScript. I don't think about pointers. It makes me wonder how many different little hurdles we put in front of people that may have made us lose them in technology completely. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious of how have you taken those opportunities of your struggle with pointers and your struggle with selling the, the family minivan like, what are some things that sort of been the gates that you've had to continue to remove for other people, but also for yourself? One of my one of my good friends, and both uh, um, I'm a mentor for her, and she is a mentor for me. Grace Mac Jones said, "We need to normalize normal people coding." 
And I really love that. When she said that, it just clicked with me. So now I've made that my whole jam. And the idea that you have to be an expert at math and go to a fancy school to be a coder really resonated because I went to a Portland Community College and that was how I got my thing. I didn't go to MIT or Stanford or one of those things. And um, I also love that in that in modern days, in the, in the 2020s here, we see um, people excited about Star Wars and code. That's fine. That's a stereotype. But hip hop and code or me with Beyonce and code or whatever, like you don't just need to be excited about code and code. Um, and I went and I started a, a TikTok and the number one question I get is, I want to be a programmer, but I'm bad at math. So clearly I, I can't be a programmer and I just like, need them to stop. Like, why is calculus, while a great thing to learn, why does calculus help you put text boxes over data better? There's not a lot of calculus in Angular and Vue.js, you know, so I, I really want people to know that I got a C in calculus uh, and uh, and that's okay, and I'm and I and I'm still able to hit the rent every month. I'm a, I'm terrible at math too. <laughs> Absolutely, I don't even think I don't even remember taking calculus. That's how bad at math I am. Um, but I just like building things. What? Um, so when people say I, when people say that to you, I'm bad at math, therefore I can't be a programmer. Like, what's your advice to them? Well, there's two things there. First, there is, you may be in a program that requires it. And if you're in a four-year school, you need to get through it. I got a C, I got straight C's all the way through my math classes. I got, I mean, I was an A student up to geometry and then it just all fell apart. Um, per persevere. Um, if there is a program by which you can avoid it, maybe you get a BA in computer science rather than a BS, a Bachelor of Arts rather than a Bachelor of Science, if there's a way that you can get around it. While math is valuable, if you're doing 3D graphics and stuff like that, for the average Joe or Jane who's getting data out of a database, it's really not, uh, it's really not necessary. But I'm afraid that until we change curriculum to change the relationship that we have with math to code, which are different things, I don't have a good answer, I'm afraid. I would love to know Mark's answer of what he got in calculus. But I'm more curious about normalizing code for normal people. How did Mark's introduction to the football, aka soccer app, correlate to his interest in programming, code, and wanting to continue down this path? I just kind of like the process of discovery. And with programming, there is always something new. There is always. And so for me, um, once I kind of, I didn't really didn't master basic, kind of like my, my programming language lineage kind of went from basic and then I kind of took a hiatus, went to college. We did Assembler, Turbo Pascal, really aging myself here, C, C++. And then we kind of kind of moved into VB6, C Sharp. I think, I've, I think I'm covering <laughs> some overlapping with other people's uh, <laughs> lineage as well. But that kind of um, slow progression, it was really a professional level where I started to think about my process for learning new ideas. And then... Um, that led to me wanting to kind of have a process for, for, for learning and observing these new things. And so that kind of led to me really wanting to start blogging and, and talking about what I, I was learning because that was the best way for me to learn. I realized that um, if I blogged about this, this and tried to explain it to somebody else, I really got it. Like I absorbed it. If I had the chance to go back and look at that, what I just read a week ago, and it still kind of made sense, I realized I probably got the, the gist of that thing. So the learning aspect for me 
really wasn't kind of connected to that initial thing, but it was connected to this kind of constant process of absorbing something, trying to explain it to my future version of myself, and then and then kind of rinse and repeat. Yeah, and I, I love that being able to <laughs> remind yourself of what you learned uh, by do- using blogging and, and keeping uh, like that is a great way to keep yourself interested, but also keep yourself rem- reminding of where you came from as well. And I did it all the time for my personal writing, uh, as well as things like podcasting. I always love going back and listening to how I sound sounded like six years ago because uh, you know I sounded a lot younger for some reason. I'm not sure why. I think it's the microphone. Um, but uh, also, just want to point out, Mark, you never told us the grade, the calculus grade. So I was know, really good. I'm going to be honest. Time. I was I was great at math. I'm going to be honest. I, I I killed it. I was I was top of the class. I'm going to be honest. Sorry, I'm totally disappointed, but I was really good. <laughs> Do oh, you no. use it every day at work? No, though, not once. Not even a little bit. Okay. It's like all those grades wasted. I- <laughs> I will also echo Mark. I did get an A in calculus, uh, so I will flex for now. As I told Mark and Scott, I was actually really good at calculus. And while I may not use it in my everyday, it has taught me a great deal about problem solving. But when I learned how to code, I was able to meet the people that built the things I learned from. And that made me hooked on open source. It seemed like the ideal problem solving tool. I wondered what intrigued Scott to explore open source. The idea that you could download a zip file and build the thing that you're also using. So it's kind of like Mark's story, except with the football management application, there was a hotkey and then you could get into the code. And with this one, you're you're running some application and you can go up and find the zip file of the source. And that was the hotkey. And it's like, oh, wait a second, I could I can change this. I can but I can build it and then make it different. That was really interesting. So then when I went to to work, I looked at the open source community as being a uh, a library of sorts, kind of like having the set of the Encyclopedia Britannica on your shelf. It's a sense of power that I can always turn behind me and go to my shelf and have all this wonderful open source resource or reference material that I could call upon. Awesome. How about you, Mark? With open source, I it was actually more recently I've got into to the open source contributions. I was taking advantage of open source software for a while. As I said, with blogging, I kind of got into an interesting scenario where I had kind of relied on um, Live Spaces, a kind of old blogging engine, to do my blogging, and then it kind of was it kind of went away. It, it kind of was g- getting um, um, dismantled, and so I needed to find something that I could reliably blog on that I could myself decide how long it was going to be around. I could maintain it myself. And that kind of led me to, to DOS blog, if I'm honest. This was for me the first time I'd really thought about what it would be mean to contribute to something or what it would mean to maintain something if there was a problem. And so I just was, as a consumer of open source, I started taking that software and hosting my own blog. Um, it, it just so happened at that time I was transitioning in my career from being a mostly desktop developer to being a mostly web developer. And so then I started using it as an opportunity to learn exactly um, the, the, the kind of details behind um, uh, the, the kind of career I wanted to kind of go into. So I'd been doing VB6 and C++ at that point. And now I had the chance to kind of do ASP.NET, which is takes us roundabout into, I think, 2003, some kind of that area. And DOSBlog was it. DOSBlog is the project Scott and Mark maintained, and they connected in the most casual of ways. 
Mark had ideas about how it could be more streamlined and reached out to Scott. From that email, a collaboration was born. So what is DOSBlog? DOSBlog is a blogging engine. It's one of the actually the oldest um, open source projects for .NET around. It was, it's a really rich blogging engine. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, I was just trying to find a, a great engine to kind of start using for, for, for my own blogging. And so I started pulling in um, DustBlog and started to actually start to contribute to it and started my own platform and started making a few adjustments that other people found helpful. I reached out actually to Scott really quickly because I realized he was, in fact, he was the kind of, he, 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 his blog was kind of um, powered by DustBlog. And I realized that some of the changes I made could be kind of used by what he was doing and vice versa. So um, I reached out and proposed a, a few minor fixes that, that would be helpful. And then after a while, he had kind of planted the seeds of the idea that we might want to, what do we want to do going into the future with, with this? So the community was kind of creating, just between us, was was creating energy for what was really a, a open source project that had been, I think, Generously, we can describe it as feature complete, and it kind of got to a natural end. And this, us kind of discussing it made us realize there was things that we still wanted. There's, there, there was ideas that we still wanted to explore. So that was, for me, that was the kind of moment where I realized open source is, is powerful, not just as, a, as an idea to get something from, but as something I can contribute to and lend, lend energy to. So, Yeah, DOS blog, which is German, by the way, for the blog... <laughs> This is true. Clemens, Clemens Vasters is a German with a sense of humor. And uh, when he made Das Blog and then made it the new, he worked for a company called Newtelligence and made Das Blog Community Edition. It was, it's almost a 20 year old blog. I have been blogging now uh, for 19 years. And it was exclusively .NET, exclusively Windows, and it ran on old Windows servers. And it was quite a burgeoning community. We had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of registered DOS blog users. And then it just kind of contracted as, as Google Reader went away and blogging went away and Ghost and Node blogs came out and people started going to Medium. Uh, but uh, my blog remains one of the oldest and, and biggest but it, it wasn't doing the things I wanted to do, but I've always loved Mark's blog and how he was saying before that he likes to explain things so that he might better understand them. And he and I found each other and our friendship is based on our collaboration around making DOS blog better. Honestly, I would say, and maybe Mark can agree with me or disagree, selfishly for ourselves. And then we find the others that are using our blogging engine as well. So as Clemens, the original uh, creator, kind of went came and went, and then Omar Shaheen, uh, who came and went, and now Mark and myself. I think our big push recently was switching from closed, not not closed source, but a closed environment on Windows to being open and running in containers and running in Linux and running in any cloud. And that's when our energy became renewed. And that's when uh, Mark took the uh, the liberty and the honest to make a really big push and refactored DOS blog for the future. I was actually intrigued when Scott was talking about the story of the original creator of DOSBlog, sort of coming and going. It's kind of a cycle of open source. People create a thing, the community takes it over because the maintainer got what they needed out of having the project. And now the community just takes the torch and continues it. And it sounds like Mark is actually taking the torch and continuing it as well. What was the path for Mark to bring this to the modern web development? 
the main thing was the main driver was again just me wanting to learn something about .NET Core and ASP.NET Core uh, more specifically. Um, so Microsoft itself was making a rather um, big shift from Windows-based platforms in the in the form of .NET Framework, full .NET Framework, to going multi-platform Linux, just kind of embracing everything and everyone in an open source way. And in the same way, um, you know, with me, my desire to just, again, just, just understand something to make sure I'm understanding it thoroughly. Um, I realized that there was an opportunity for me to kind of serve two purposes for me to kind of contribute to a community out there that has been shrinking. Um, and that I actually need to kind of continue my blogging effort. Um, but also an ability to learn. So I've literally, was creating blog post after blog post about this burgeoning new kind of .NET Core platform while creating on .NET Core platform. So it was kind of like a righteous circle where I'm able to to kind of learn, write, and just re- keep repeating that. Piggybacking on what he just said, I really found the idea of the impossibility of a thing that was made before another thing running on that thing. So for example, I brought up DOS blog on a Raspberry Pi recently. Like Raspberry Pis didn't exist. And now this thing that's 20 years old runs on that thing. I find that fascinating. I really love that .NET, uh, a platform that some people may have written off, is now this rich open source community. And when Mark says, hey, I think I have a prototype that's going to allow this to run on Linux. I was like, come on. I, I, I just, I, I honestly, I was a little bit, incredulous about it. And I was like, you know, I mean, maybe like I could see where this part would work. And he's like, no, I have an architecture. And he showed me the architecture. And I was like, by gads, he's done it. You know? And it was like a moment. I mean, I don't know if you remember that Mark, when you showed me the, the way you put razor pages and I was like, I was like, and this built. And he's like, no, it isn't just built. I'm running it live in production right now. And I was like, oh my goodness, we have to hang out. And like, I want to see what, where you're going to go with this. Yeah. Is that a fair statement? I see you blushing, Mark. I'm not (laughs) sure if that's correct or not. Markets got aligned in the interests immediately and their aspirations. When it comes to a heritage code, this is significant because you're carrying on the aspirations and intentions of something that has already established a fair amount of traction. What was interesting to me was that there was so much code. I think we abandoned ideas really, really quickly in, in computer science. We kind of jump around with ideas. And what I saw with DOSBlog is that it was so well, it was at least a very, very consistent, very well written. And so you could kind of separate the concerns. And so the things that was, so for example, DustBlog primarily uses XML files. And all of that just continues to work. It's almost unchanged code. It's like literally thousands of lines that I haven't changed since 2000 and whatever, 2005 or whatever. Um, But just with a little bit of thought, you could essentially make something like ASP.NET Core and remove all of the Windows dependencies. There was so much that was built into DOSBlog that essentially didn't exist until the, until the last five or 10 years. And so it was a case of let's keep what we can use. Let's put, let's use the community to build this into a more um, robust platform and let's keep the parts that are still good. And so it was able to kind of architect this, this new version of DOSBlog that kind of took advantage of all that. Yeah, it sounds like the um, 
the, the, the fuel, the fire that comes from community was able to not only revive the project, but also just bring it into this, the, so the next generation. Um, like I, I use that term, but also I think it's actually relevant of analogy where like Star Trek was not a thing that was around when I was a kid, uh, but the next generation was. Um, so even though I wasn't even aware of basic and I knew about VB, now all these new programmers can now be aware of how to get .NET powered blogs using the DOS blog uh, architecture onto Raspberry Pis, which is kind of mind-blowing, which I wanted to go back real quick and say, uh, just kind of go full circle just real quick, because uh, you both mentioned really old architectures for computers, like the Commodore 64, the Apple IIe, the ZDX. How have you seen the sort of the sort of renaissance of what is old is now cool and, and in vogue. I know like I've got a niece that walks around with the tape player um, because she thinks she's cool. Um, but like now you see, you can get a Raspberry Pi running and playing the games in the, the programs that you are using as a kid. Like what's your, your thoughts? And also do you, do you nerd out and being able to relive that experience? Yeah, that's that's kind of like my whole jam. I've got a half dozen Raspberry Pis within arm's distance. And that's not a joke. I've actually got about 13 of them. And uh, being able to make something with your hands that's small and lets you relive your childhood is exciting. Actually, remember, Mark, when we were planning to move over from me running on a physical machine to the cloud, we decided to do what's called a scream test where you turn it off and you see if anyone screams, right? And that's like a classic ops thing. When we, I, I don't know whether you were nervous, but when we moved my blog over, when you, when you moved your blog over, did you have any concerns that maybe people would notice? I didn't have any concerns for my blog. I had concerns for your blog. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, my, if I'm down for a few weeks, who really cares? Yours, I genuinely, I was genuinely concerned when you said, oh, I'm just going to do this, do move over this afternoon. I'm like, what? Wait, I need to take time off. <laughs> I, need to, I need to support this. But when apparently wasn't quite the disaster I assumed it would be. One of my chief concerns when I moved from Live Spaces was that I wanted a format that essentially I could move anywhere and do anything I want with. And so the reason why I picked DOSBlog was because it had kind of made a really bold statement to say, instead of using a database or instead of using some kind of custom formatted file. I'm going to use XML and it's going to be text. And you can essentially open and close this anywhere you want, which was for me was the best way of saying you own the data as best you can. And so the the essence of, of DOSBlog was to kind of maintain that idea that this is all XML based. So essentially you could literally pick up the content of your 20 year old blog, drag and drop it into DOSBlog core, and uh, which is the new name, um, and you're, you're up and running. When it comes to refining code, it's all about simplicity. When you're working on something that has an older code base and you're working to update it, you have to pay attention to the things that aren't as sexy. Given that, where do Mark and Scott find their inspiration? What keeps them excited to work on DOS blog? While it does require a certain amount of history to appreciate how far it's come, I am still excited by the idea of it running anywhere. 
running in Docker, running in Linux, running in the cloud. Right now I've moved it over to Azure and it's running in a tiny little Linux uh, container and it works great. Um, we, I'm excited about exploring ways to take all those XML files and put them in S3 or put them in Azure storage and have them exist in a cloud storage. And we've found a way to actually lie to DOS blog where it's still writing to what it thinks is a folder, but it's a mount point that points off into the cloud, which is really really exciting. Um, I think that there's always a new markup format for Twitter or Open Graph or whatever that would allow you to see that differently. I think with the death of Google Reader, there's still exciting ways to, you know, should we plug it into Substack? Could I make it so a blog in DOSBlog turns into a Substack post and that turns into an email? You know, we haven't explored that. There's always a new way to push strings around on the internet as a way of getting our our message out, and I still think we have some pretty cool bugs that we're that we're slowly looking to to fix as well. So, if Mark didn't come along and say, "Hey, I've got this blog, and I think we can probably move this over to modern hosting and the cloud and to Raspberry Pis," do you think you'd still be using DOS Blog? Oh man, that is a really great question. Where would I be without Mark? I would probably have a far less superior instance of DOS blog cobbled together, running quite poorly uh, on some form of Linux. But I can truly say that the inspiration he had for layering the web part with the backend part, um, I I would not have done that by myself. I, I would have probably I would have made a static site generator and I would have written something that spun over the XML files and made static sites and hosted them in GitHub pages somewhere. But I am extremely happy with the way that we did what we did because the layering that he made allowed me to reuse my theme um, almost unchanged in the new Razor pages, uh, ASP.NET Razor pages format. So yeah, uh, it would, I would be a shadow of myself. <laughs> And I guess I would pose the question to you, Mark, uh, just in a different way. Um, I I know that Scott, uh, he's got the the moniker of the Mr. Rogers of tech. Um, So I'm curious if you had a different maintainer to approach um, that wasn't always about, like, Scott, he prides himself on being able to remove gates and kind of open the doors for a lot of people. Like, what sort of, like, looking back, would you have continued on this process if you didn't have such a inviting and excited maintainer to bring you into the core team and into the flow of things? That would have been difficult. I'm going to be honest. That would have been really difficult because ultimately you're looking for somebody to to generate energy with, and if if it's, it's not welcoming, that kind of is a energy kind of uh, kind of ruins energy that you get. And so, um, what what I think you kind of look for with when you're coming into an open source project is somebody who's inviting, who who hears you out, who said who who kind of encourages you and says, yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't make sense. Here's what we've done in the past. Here's why we did it this way. That was one of the other big things as well about maintainers is that you can kind of set the atmosphere for your project by the way you uh, interact with people who kind of submit issues and and talk to you online. And Scott was really kind of really um, comfortable in sharing the, the 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 reasons why things were the way they were um and and the why was really important about why i tried to keep as much as i could and having a reason for that was important so yeah i think having somebody who is uh comfortable making other people feel comfortable is really really important 
Like any community, there are certain codes of conduct that need to be in place to allow community members to thrive. In the context of GitHub and the coders that populate it, giving each other a sense of support and comfort is hugely important. How has the Mr. Rogers of the open source community made people feel welcome? So it's open source, which means that it has to be open egos. And decisions that Clemens made 20 years ago and decisions that Omar made and decisions that I made and others that participated made sense at the time. And Mark would say, well, why is this like this? And I say, well, this is what I remember. And here's what the email said. But like, but what do you think we should do? And he sh- would share his ideas. And then it, you know, it, it, I would have to say it, it very quickly, the roles switched. I was you know, maintainer and steward. And then it became clear that Mark had a vision that was superior to mine. So then we swapped roles. And I remember when we switched the URL in GitHub, from Chancelman DOS blog to Papa String DOS blog. And then we said, all right, Mark, you're the, re- you're the definitive and I'm the fork. That was an important time because I became the customer and his, his ability to have empathy for my different features was really, really important. And I was like, hey, I, I kind of need this feature. I kind of would like it to go in this direction. And he's like, well, let's make a feature flag because I use it differently on my blog. So we have a lot of feature flags. His blog is different than mine. It looks different. Its URLs are different. Its experience is different. You wouldn't be able to tell he and I run the same blog engine. Mm-hmm. But his empathy for me enables my blog to still live on. I think it's really amazing. You know, you said open egos and talked about just like the respect you have for each other. And when you made that, that switch, I can imagine you would have to have, um, kind of a very open ego, but I wonder what did that, did that do anything for the community? Did they notice that? Did they comment about it? What did they think of your relationship? People just put the pull request to Mark. I mean, I think that that doesn't matter. Like the, the the project can't be the person. I know that there are people-driven projects. There are ego-driven projects. There's so-and-so that made the project X. Dos blog was never just Clemens or just Scott. And it's not even just Mark right now. It's just the URL that it lives in. Is that a fair statement, Mark? Yeah, I think so. I, we, we, I get people. I think what I'm most proud of with Dos blog is that people contribute meaningful things um, from people who are obviously first time to GitHub, frankly. Um, I'm seeing that it's their first pull request, which really makes me the most happy. And then folks who have been using it for, you know, who have been on GitHub for a while. So that kind of really makes me happy that people are comfortable enough. I really I really go out of my way to make sure the folks feel real, real comfortable submitting something. We'll talk about it. I'm happy to email folks. I'm happy to kind of sit with folks as they kind of figure out how to build for the first time. So the contributions are, are really just incredibly important from the community. And as, as Quentin alluded to before, making folks feel comfortable, I think, is is one of the biggest responsibilities you have as a open source community leader. If you can't do that, it's going to be really difficult to kind of have the success you want, I think. Um, so what's, the, what's, what's more important, the code or the community? I would say the community and the functionality. I don't care about the code. If they type a URL and they hit enter and it shows them what they want to see, then DoshBlock did its job. I was going to just simply say that I am not so concerned that things don't look the way I personally want them to look. I really am concerned with does it work in the way that we all assume it should work. 
Um, I always think about code that we can change this later. We can, does it work? First of all, is there some reasonable consistency to it? And if that's the case, um, yeah, I, I think that's, it's most important to me that folks submit, they feel comfortable doing so and comfortable making mistakes too. Um, and, and I think we, we can make room for folks who, who are at various stages of their programming career. Mistakes are one of the best ways we learn and grow. And setting realistic expectations is also part of that process. As we know from speaking with different maintainers, they're often surprised by how much they have to step away from actually coding. It can be hard to do things you really want to do when you're busy taking care of all the issues that may arise. If you had the time, what would Scott do with it? I wish I had more time for one-on-one sitting with someone, but I also respect that I don't think that that scales and then that informs my content creation. So I don't think that this will sound, tell me if this sounds egotistical. I don't have time, nor do I think it is a good use of my time to sit down with a stranger and teach them Git for an hour. I think it is a good use of my time to make a video on Git for an hour and send them a YouTube link to that and then ask them if they have questions. So if Mark and I were going to do something cool, like, you know, make a new feature, I think that we might talk ahead of time and maybe live stream it so that an artifact of our collaboration is is made. Because I think a lot of open source contributors spend a lot of time playing whack-a-mole with like, oh, this problem or this issue or that issue or this per when time could be made just simply recording a video or dictating a memo or updating their readme. I think the readme is kind of is is a great introduction for making sure the people know they're welcome. Um, so I, at first when I started, I was not prepared with that particular part of the project. I didn't know how, how important that was. And so I would get a lot of the same questions and that really informed me to say, hey, the introduction of how people can just simply get started. What are we doing here and why? And what's the most important thing? That kind of read me helped me kind of define the kind of the rules of engagement and how we can make each other's lives much easier. So um, I spent a lot of time making sure that that was clear and um, and helpful. I really like that statement. It's, it's almost like we should have a podcast called the Read Me Podcast. Um, <laughs> a pretty app. I think that's a, a good knowledge point for maintainers to live stream or create a video that's shareable or a blog post. I'm, I've become fascinated with internet archival systems recently and just like the whole concept of like when GeoCities was being shut down, all of the servers are being destroyed and these guys found it and they were like, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to save this. And now GeoCities is archived and it's something that, you know, is near and dear to me in my childhood. So I love that it was saved. Is that something that you guys think about when people approach you and they're like, oh, I found my, my old blog and I want to, I want to read through these zip files. Definitely from my perspective, I, I think about the lot. I, I think about, I do think about the idea that the things we write are worth saving, that the web is worth preserving in its form. I do think about the fact that, um, um, as I said, kind of alluded to earlier, I, I like the kind of period of hip hop where they used James Brown to kind of define a whole new subgenre of music, right? They kind of used this, this, the, the, the beats to kind of define something brand new. And so I always think about how people kind of remixing 
their lives to kind of create new things. And when folks tell me that they've got this blog that really was used back in 2005 and it's got two years worth of data and they just kind of want to make sure it's out there. Um, I think that's, I think that's fantastic. I just love the idea of preserving our identities on the web. I love that. Yeah. I've gone so far as to make a digital will with a digital, uh, power of attorney and a friend of mine uh, will keep the blog running if I pass. And we actually had a friend pass recently and their blog is maintained by another friend just because permalinks matter, URLs matter. Wow, that's pretty deep. And it's something you don't really think about when you're just using the node servers or the Reacts or the Angulars. You're just trying to chase the resume-driven development. But I think it's so honorable to actually keep the lights on regardless of how big the community is or how many people are using it. Because the web, it kind of seems circular. A lot of times you see the things that we learn from Java or C applied to modern languages. And I use the term modern as in air quotes because we're relearning stuff. And you're using the same thing that we already learned 40 years ago, today. One of my most popular blog posts that I use every day is your words are wasted if you're pouring them into a walled garden and a URL that you do not own. And I think Mark and I share the opinion that owning your own URL gives you a power. So when young people say, I want to start a medium, I want to start a, uh, a GitHub pages, I want to start a, uh, a Wix site, I encourage them to think about maybe register your domain. It's like 10 bucks, we can register a domain for you right now. So whatever blogging engine you choose, you own that URL. Like, don't change your phone number if you can. Don't change your email if you can. Don't change your URL. It's your identity. Um, and I think that's super, uh, super important. You know, you don't. And the other thing I want to say is that a lot of people say, "Well, I don't want to start a blog because I don't have anything to talk about. I'm not going to have a million people visit my blog." Blah blah blah. All you need is one reader, mm-hmm. and you've doubled the power of your keystrokes. One additional reader, and even if no one reads your blog. I think Mark and I both have this amazing feeling when we Google something and we find ourselves in the past and we don't even recognize the writer, but they have the answer. And we're like, oh, that that handsome guy, he wrote a thing about that back in 2005. Oh, look at that. Mark Downey wrote all about this. Finding blogs about our own blog 15 years ago, solving a problem is a pretty awesome feeling. So that's why blogging is an online diary and everybody should blog. Well, you kind of both talked about this, how it helps you, like just the craft of blogging, the craft of, of talking about code, of, of live streaming your work environments helps you learn. And so even if it's, if you're the only one who is reading your own blog, you're still, you know, you're accomplishing a goal. Speaking of like the the old and the little mix of the new, and we keep talking about the young people and what would they blog on. You both are have a wealth of knowledge of just existing and working on the internet for a long time. I'm curious um, as we go like move towards serverless, we're moving towards a lot uh, more front end um, architecture for blogging specifically. Uh, why do we need more people like you in tech? I, I would I would gently say though this could be a whole other podcast here because here's a, as a new, when I say the young people I simply mean new in tech. I want to encourage people that are career changers and anyone who's early in their career to, to regardless of age. But serverless is a lie, right? Serverless just means that we talk about servers less. <laughs> They still exist. They're still computers. I think the more interesting thing is, is the Angular, Vue, 
Blazor, JavaScript-heavy front-end thing that you're using, producing something that a, a web crawler can see. I don't care what your website's written in. I would encourage you to be excited about whatever religion makes you happy. But when you Google for Mark or Brian or Kathy, do you find yourself and can Google and Bing see it? Can DuckDuckGo send us to your URL? Is it visible on a um, on a Android cheap Android phone that's on the other side of the world from you? Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that Mark and I got to to do was think about what does DOS blog look like if it's hosted in Chicago, but someone in India visits it or an Indonesian looks at it on a cheap Android phone. Should we squish the images? Should we squish the URL? Should we use AMP? Um, should we put it on a CDN? Should we make it so it exists in two places? Should it be scalable? These are really cool, interesting questions, but they're all rooted in fundamental customer empathy. Someone's going to visit that in a taxi and they're Googling for help on a problem. And they find Mark's blog. Did it look good? I don't care what it's written in. So it's not about, do we need more people that, that, are, that are Mark and my generation, or my generation and Mark is much younger, or are, are they using accessible technologies that are allowing them to get that information? That's the really interesting thing. It's about customer empathy. It's not about technology. And I completely agree. And that's one of the things I love about GitHub. It's not only about the code, it's about the relationships between the coders that makes the magic. Speaking with Scott Hanselman and Mark Downey was a true pleasure. I'm Brian Douglas, and I'm a developer advocate here at GitHub. And I'm Kathy Korvec. I work in product at GitHub. The README podcast is a GitHub podcast that dives into the challenges our guests face and how they overcame those hurdles. In sharing these stories, we hope to provide a spotlight on what you don't always see in the lines of code and what it took to build the technology that inspires us all. It's been really great spending time with you. The README podcast is part of the README project at GitHub a space that amplifies the voices of the developer community, the maintainers, the leaders, and the teams whose contributions move the world forward every day. Visit github.com slash readme to learn more. Our theme music has been produced on GitHub by Dan Gorelick with Tidal Cycles, additional music from Ray Royale and Blue Dot Sessions. The Readme podcast is produced by Sound Made Public for GitHub. Please subscribe, share, and follow GitHub on Twitter for updates on the podcast and all things GitHub. Thanks for listening.